another bombshell for you regarding the 2020 election. Despite the intense, malicious censorship of big tech, we're really becoming known for in-depth analysis research of current events. So, thank you for your support as we continue to fight for the very survival of America and our constitutional republic. This story begins with the little-known executive order signed in existence on September 12, 2018 by President Donald J. Trump. That order, available at whitehouse.gov, is entitled Executive Order on Imposing Certain Sanctions in the Event of Foreign Interference in the United States Election. In this executive order, which almost no one has covered since the day it was signed, President Trump declares a national emergency. That emergency is still in play to this day, and the 2020 election was conducted under the state of emergency, which is a crucial point to understand what's coming next. In the executive order, the president also states that people and organizations located in part outside of the United States are known to be able to, quote, interfere in or undermine public confidence in the United States elections, including, though, the unauthorized access in of election and campaign infrastructure or the covert distribution of propaganda and disinformation, unquote. Now, if you're starting to see how this ties into CNN, the New York Times, Washington Post, MSNBC, and the other news outlets, they are complicit, and you are not alone. All of these organizations, as you will soon see, have been caught under this emergency declaration of foreign interference in United States elections, aided by complicit corporations on United States soil. The executive order further states that this foreign interference in United States elections, quote, constitutes an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security and foreign policy of the United States, unquote. Now, why is this relevant to anything that we're seeing right now? Because Dominion Voting Systems is a Canadian company. And Skytel, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that wrong, right? It is S-C-Y-T-L. That is run out of Spain. Dominion is a foreign-owned company, which makes Dominion-based election theft a foreign interference issue. Skytel, by the way, is connected by George Soros and the Democrats. And according to GPT, TGP, quote, Bill Gates owns stock in Skytel, unquote. I will be explaining what Skytel is here in a second. Another voting machine company, which is Skytel, Alsley also wildly rented lips tonight, folks. Let's try this again. Another voting machine company called Skydal, also widely used in United States elections, is located in Spain. As Great Game India reports, quote, days after it was revealed how 2020 United States elections were rigged by Canadian Crown Agent Dominion voting systems through a so-called glitch. Now, Great Game India has found involvement of another dubious foreign company in United States election meddling. 
The votes cast by Americans were counted by a bankrupted Spanish company, Skydal, in Spain. Like Dominion voting systems, Skydal has a long history of election fraud in various nations, including injecting back doors in its election software. The issue has been prompted experts to question why the sensitive job of counting votes was outsourced to a foreign company. How could a bankrupted Spanish company count American votes in Spain? And due to such widespread fraud, the chairman of the United States Federal Election Commission, Trey Trainer, believes that the 2020 United States presidential elections is illegitimate. And what people are missing in all of this is that Trump's 2018 executive order gives the Department of Justice the power to seize all assets of individuals and companies that were complicit in aiding or covering up this foreign interference in the United States elections. The National Emergency Order specifically calls for the seizure of all assets of entities that have, quote, directly or indirectly engaged in, sponsored, concealed, or otherwise been complicit in foreign interference in the United States election. That would, of course, have to include practically every CNN fake news anchor, every big tech CEO, every fake news journal terrorist from NBC News, the New York Times, and the Washington Post, along with a few others. They are all complicit in gaslighting America and covering up the massive foreign election interference that just took place. And if you tell a lie off enough, people will begin to believe that lie. Trump's executive order further explains that asset seizure shall target people and entities which have, quote, materially assisted sponsored or provided financial material or technical support for or goods or services to or in support of any activity described in subsection A-I of this section or any person whose property and interests in property are blocked pursuant to this order or I-I-I to be owned or controlled by or to have acted or purported to act for or on behalf of, directly or indirectly, any person whose property or interests in property are blocked pursuant to this order, unquote. In other words, the executive order covers every person who has been corrupted or compromised by communist China. And this includes at least 80% of the Democratic lawmakers, and by our estimates, including Feinstein and Schiff. But... That is not even the full extent of what is demanded by this executive order. In Section 8, the order explains that the term person also means, quote, a partnership, association, trust, joint venture, corporation, group, subgroup, or other organization, unquote. In other words, any media organization that assisted in covering up or assisting foreign interference in a United States election is specifically targeted by this executive order. Further, in the definition section, the executive order explains, quote, the term election infrastructure means 
information and communications technology and systems used by or on behalf of the federal government or a state or local government in managing the election process, including voter registration databases, voting machines, voting tabulation equipment, and equipment for the secure transmission of election results. <clears throat> that would include the Dominion voting systems as well as other voting systems used in the recent election. Finally, the executive order describes what it means by the term foreign interference. It means, quote, <clears throat> any covert, fraudulent, deceptive, or unlawful actions or attempted actions of a foreign government or of any person acting as an agent of or on behalf of a foreign government undertaken with the purpose or effect of influencing, undermining confidence in, or altering the result or reported result of the election or undermining public confidence in election process or institutions, unquote. Note the important words of, quote, altering the result or reported result of the election, unquote. This is exactly what big tech and the lying fake news media have done to America. More than merely a crime, it is treason. And it fell right into the national emergency trap that Trump publicly announced in 2018, which now means all these corporations and organizations can have their assets seized literally overnight. In a video, Trump's attorney, Sidney Powell, describes, quote, staggering statistical evidence, unquote, and, quote, staggering witness testimony, unquote, about the criminal election fraud that was carried out across America. She also adds, quote, if you want to talk about foreign election interference, we certainly have it now, unquote. You can listen to her Twitter broadcast on Lou Dobbs on Twitter if you want to see that broadcast. Now, let's think, about Kate, this is all speculation and rumor. Well, let's get to the part where the rubber meets the road, shall we? According to a video interview with Representative Louis Gohmert, Republican of Texas, which aired earlier, the United States military had just conducted a raid on the server farm of the now-bankrupt Skydal Company in Barcelona, Spain. The Gateway Pundit, which has been at the forefront of much of Bombshell's reporting, of the election-rigged conspiracy that took place on November 3rd, reached out to, to its sources to confirm the military operations in Europe as related to gathering evidence of the election theft. Here is what the Gateway Pundit reported, quote, the United States government, once they determined that Dominion server was involved in switching votes, then the intelligence community began a search for the server and discovered that the server was in Germany. In order to get access to that server and have it available for use in a legal manner, they had to have the State Department work in tandem with the Department of Justice. They had to request the government of Germany to cooperate in allowing the seizure of the server. The appropriate documents required to effect this kind of seizure were put in place, signed off, and it appears that there was also United States military support in this operation. The United States military was not in the lead of this operation, 
but this does help to explain why Esper was fired and Miller and Cash Patal were put in place, so that the military would not interfere with the operation in any way. By getting hold of the server, they now are going to have the direct evidence of when they were instructed to stop counting. They will also discover who gave the direction to stop counting and who initiated the algorithm that started switching the votes. The CIA was completely excluded from this operation, unquote. The interview with Representative Gomert is not, it is on brighteon.com. That's B-R-I-G-H-T-E-O-N.com. Just in case YouTube tries to memory hold the video. We also have confirmation from WikiLeaks documents that the CIA used a data center in Frankfurt as a remote hacking base to rig U.S. elections. DW.com reported, quote, WikiLeaks released a trove of CIA documents on Tuesday that is claimed revealed details of its secret hacking arsenal. The release included 8,761 documents that it claimed revealed details of the malware, viruses, trojans, weaponized zero-day exploits, malware remote control systems, and associated documentation. The leaks purportedly revealed that a top-secret CIA unit used the German city in Frankfurt, Am Main, as the starting point for numerous hacking attacks on Europe, China, and the Middle East. German daily, I have no idea how to pronounce this, and I'm going to butcher it, Sadocha's Zeitung reported the building was known to be the home of a vast network of intelligence personnel, including CIA agents, NSA spies, military secret service personnel, Department of Homeland Security employees, and Secret Service employees. It is reported the Americans had also established a dense network of outposts and shell companies in Frankfurt. Unquote. Really? The very people that we are instructed to trust are the very people that cannot be trusted. Oh, we already knew that. It appears the CIA was using the same foreign data center to hack the United States elections, and they got caught. This is precisely why, as the Gateway Pundit reports, the CIA was kept completely out of the server raid operation that just took place in Germany. The raid was likely leveled against the CIA's sworn own server, or their own server farm, that ran the remote Dominion hacking operation the night of the election. And it should be obvious to any informed person that everything big tech and the fake news media did to rig this election then bury the Democrats' massive vote fraud operations was a covert, fraudulent deception, and unlawful action. And it was all carried out on behalf of the communist nations like China, and globalist operations that are located outside of the United States. It is not merely that the voting system companies whose hardware and software systems rigged the elections were located in Canada and Spain. We are also told that part of the CIA's rigging of the election in real time involved data being offshore to servers located in Germany and possibly 
Serbia. So there's at least three or four foreign countries involved in this election. And that does not even include China and Venezuela, who both had other roles in running influence operations to rig the election outcome in favor of Biden. Funding Dominion was also provided, it is rumored, from wealthy socialists in Venezuela. Now Team Trump is in the process of gathering irrefutable evidence of criminal collusion to carry out election interference. And the cover-up trails will lead directly to big tech, targeted censorship and collusion with China, and the fake news left-wing media, gaslighting propaganda campaign to cover up evidence and foreign collusion. This means in one fell swoop, President Donald J. J. Donald J. Trump will be able to arrest and seize the assets of all the top Democrats and deep state traitors who attempted to steal the 2020 election. He can seize all the big tech corporations and left-wing media propaganda outlets that were complicit in the conspiracy. This would also include seizing their domain names such as twitter.com, youtube.com, facebook.com, etc. He could defeat the DNC forever by revealing overwhelming evidence of widespread election fraud which will also result in a nationwide call for a voter ID system for all future elections. It'll solidify his own standing as the brilliant mastermind president of the United States of America for a second term and perhaps a third, if I dare say. The action plan to achieve this is underway as you hear this broadcast. Team Trump already has the full transaction logs of Dominion voting systems elections alterations, and with raids taking place in Europe, more evidence of foreign interference is being secured. Importantly, this enormous cache of vote fraud evidence will be more than sufficient for President Trump to present his evidence to the American people and declare an illegal insurrection attempt against the United States of America while deploying United States Marshals or the military police to arrest the treasonous actors in the United States who attempted to carry out this elaborate criminal fraud. No wonder John Brennan appears to be crapping himself every time he appears on live television. Once Trump's plan is fully activated, people like Brennan will need a lifetime supply of depends. Once all of the evidence is compiled and presented, President Trump merely needs to declare the entire election to be null and void as an artifact of a failed foreign coup attempt against the United States, aided by treasonous operators inside the Democratic Party and certain dark corners of the intelligent community, such as CIA, FBI, etc. As an immutable legal principle, any party that engages in a social contract, such as an election, and then cheats to try to unfairly win that contract is disqualified by default. You cannot win an election by stealing it. There's overwhelming legal precedent for this in court decisions from both SCOTUS and federal district courts. The recounts are now irrelevant. You still have to go through the process, though. The certification of the fraudulent votes is just theater. None of that matters once the overwhelming fraudulent nature of the entire operation is documented and revealed to all. Trump has already won this election. The treasonous enemies of, the, of America have already been caught, and they should face criminal charges by the thousands as all of this plays out. 
that is unless they flee the country first. The Department of Justice is about to drop the hammer on the entire operation. The American people are with Trump, including many Democrats who are now sickened by what they've witnessed take place with the wholesale left-wing election theft. Americans will not allow their country to be stolen by foreign interests. And as we've mentioned before, if Trump needs to call every able-bodied man in America to converge on Washington, D.C., fully armed with courage, millions of patriots will arrive to defend this constitutional republic against its enemies, both foreign and domestic. Trump no longer needs to win recounts, and he certainly does not need the media on his side. They will not be around much longer anyway. All Trump needs is to continue gathering evidence, prepare to present it to the world, and continue to garner support from millions of Americans who are ready to lay down their lives on the line, if necessary, to defend this nation. We win if we choose to win. And the only way we lose is if we surrender to the criminals on the left. And the word concede is not even in our vocabulary. We are witnessing one of the most epic political genius 4D chess moves in American history. Grab some popcorn because victory is coming. Hey everyone, and welcome to Around the Campfire with Kate. The introduction music and lyrics is entitled America is Dying, But It's Not Too Late by Dave Bray and Jeremy Harrell. Come on over and check out Dave Bray's patriotic music on YouTube. Tonight I'm going to talk about situational awareness and covert operations. This is a call-in show, so if you want to call in and make a statement, ask a question, or just give your opinion, please feel free. The number is 786-245-8127, or you can call in using Skype through PSN Radio. That number again is 786-245-8127. Before I begin this portion, I want to say that this information applies to everyone. I know that everyone uh, hearing this is already on board, basically, to what I, I say. But I think a lot of people disregard situations and would rather pretend that a disaster could not happen to them. The information that I'm about to share applies to you. That is, if you want to survive. Let me talk a little bit about advanced preparation and tell you that if you don't have either a physical skill or material possessions prior to a disaster striking, then you're probably not going to survive. And everyone has something to offer. You may not have material possessions, but you can make coffee change bandages on a wounded individual. You can be chief cook and bottle washer. This means that training and development of a physical skill is just as important as physical items. We're going to talk about all that stuff and more. The concept of getting out of Dodge before the gridlock is one that is really critical because if you can understand that a situation is happening prior to the others, you can get yourself out. In most disasters, I've broken things down to five phases. 
I'll include man-made disasters in here as well as natural disasters. Some examples of a man-made disaster would be war, civil unrest, the breaking down of the government services, and rule of law. Or should I say no rule of law? Let's hit phase one. Pre-disaster phase. Disaster is imminent, but only obvious to those who are aware and prepared. Society is still operating eh, normally somewhat at this point. All services are operational. If you're to be aware enough to understand that you're in the pre-disaster phase, this is the perfect opportunity for you to get out. Phase two, eminence or gridlock phase. Suddenly the, the disaster has become obviously imminent to the vast majority of people. There will be a mass fleeing at this point. Roads are going to be choked with vehicles. There's going to be the urgency and panic in the population. And really at all costs, you want to avoid attempting to get out during this time. You want to get out before. And what I'm going to talk about is focusing on what you do to get yourself out in the pre-disaster phase and how you understand when that phase is happening. Second-guessing yourself can put you in a very dangerous predicament. Phase three, that's the strike phase. The disaster is actually occurring. Usually when the strike phase is happening, if the disaster is active, you want to stay laying low. If you've missed the pre-disaster phase, remember, this is not a good time to get out. You want to lay low during this time. And please note that if a disaster is ongoing and there's no seeming end to it, you may still try to get out at this point. But generally, it's a time to lay low and assess the situation because it's a pretty dangerous time to be out and about. Phase four, that's the shock phase. This is another actual opportunity to get out. Yeah, if you haven't been able to get out, we're talking the big cities. And if you haven't been able to get out prior to the disaster and you can be prepared, you can get yourself out during the shock phase. That's immediately following the disaster because most people are mentally and physically paralyzed. People don't really comprehend what just happened. They won't understand what to do because they won't have a good plan or the physical skills to act out that plan. And this provides your second opportunity to escape if you've missed the first opportunity. The shock phase can be a really long or really short period of time. You really need to understand immediately following the actual strike phase where the disaster is actually occurring. This will give you a small window of opportunity where most people are going to be stagnant. However, even though the shock phase does provide you a second opportunity to get out, it's much more difficult than it is in the pre-disaster phase, mainly because in the case of a natural disaster, debris or damage could be blocking your usual travel routes. Also, in the case of some kind of man-made disaster or social unrest, potential looters and thieves are going to be out and about. That's going to be much more dangerous to move as opposed to the prior event happening in the first place. Phase five, that's the panic phase. There will be another mass fleeing, looting, and violence. We saw this in Katrina, and we're, we've witnessed it during these elections. We've witnessed it during this last year in COVID. 
you want to not be there during this this dangerous time. When I talk about getting out before the gridlock, I'm really talking all about avoiding all of this. And I know it might not seem to glorify to just take off, get in your vehicle and drive away when everything seems normal, but that's the ideal situation or scenario for you. It should be easy if you get out during the initial phase. When I talk about these different phases, I think that it's important to note that there's a small window of opportunity. For example, the pre-disaster phase is probably even the smallest, where you may only have just a very, very short amount of time to act. Having as much as you can already in order, your plan, your supplies, everything that you need to get out is critical. What is the time frame to get out? I give myself 15 minutes. Others time themselves at 30 minutes. If you can get that set up to where you have everything you need and you're out of there in 30 minutes, that gives you a much greater chance of making it through the disaster. When I'm talking about gridlock, I'm mostly talking about all of our systems of transportation, all of our resource systems, grocery stores, fuel, etc. They all rely on a slow, steady use. No city is prepared for everybody to leave at the same time. So think about it. No gas station is prepared for everybody to fill up at the same time. Whenever there's a panic or an opportunity for everybody to try and get somewhere all at once, you get gridlock. And that's what I'm talking about. Some of this stuff seems complex, but in reality, all you need to do is think simple. One of the biggest mistakes people make during a panic situation is they panic. You can count on every man, woman, and child to be on edge, especially during an evacuation. There's no friends. There's no neighbors. It will be every man for himself. Human beings can smell fear, and we must prepare for this. We're not all meant to play the hero, and we all bleed, suffer, and experience fear. It's important to remember that this is normal and it is to be expected. This is why we want to prepare to blend in and never stand out in a crowd, whether it be our clothes, the way we walk, our talk. Our goal in a crisis should be the opposite of what people do on television <laughs> or in the films. We don't want to stand out and we don't want to get noticed. And we should never try to be a hero. We should try to be the extras, you know, in the background. It's The extras are the people who are not part of the story, but they live to tell about it later. We should never show our fear. Make sure you always walk decisively and not spend any time looking around. Stopping and turning your head is the universal signal for, hey, I'm lost. Those who are lost attract undue attention. There may be people who look to help out in times of trouble, but you're better off focusing on those who want to cause you harm. The best way to keep these vultures at bay is by giving them nothing to notice. Stopping to ask for directions, turning around repeatedly, or doing anything which might make you seem nervous can cost you and your team or your family dearly. Always try to act confidently in crowds and move directly from point A 
to point B if you can. We want to blend in as much as possible. This means being aware of our surroundings and our evacuation destination. And we should pack accordingly as we do not want to look as if we're better off than the surrounding population. You can wear neutral clothes, try to resemble your environment. Ignore fashion trends and preferably use older or weathered clothing. Remember, it's nobody's business to know how much money, food, or supplies that you have. The less impressive you seem, the less likely anyone is going to ask you questions. Keep your head down, but your eyes up. You look to scan visually without major head movement. You do not need to see a 360-degree circle. Simply keeping your head tilted towards the ground and using your eyes to scan side to side can tell you everything that you need to know about what's going on around you. If you feel the need to look often, I do this exercise often, hold your hand and arms out from your body to your side at shoulder length. Hold, hold your eyes straight ahead. Put your arms and hands as far back as they'll go. Now, slowly bring your arms and hands toward your front, wiggling your fingers a little bit as, at a time as you go. Continue looking forward. When you can see your arms and fingers, mainly your fingers, from your peripheral vision, stop moving your arms forward. Make a mental note of where your hands are. That is your field of vision. Practice looking in your field of vision often and see if you can expand your field. And then stick to your team. Regardless of how big or small your team is, there's always greater strength and greater numbers. Try not to be separated from your team, especially in a foreign or hostile environment. It's also not a bad idea to stand in groups of two back to back if you feel threatened. If you need to walk back to back until you're out of danger, then do so. This behavior should be reversed for vi visibly tense situations which are already getting out of hand. And this approach was once used by soldiers in battle so that they could literally watch each other's back. It is, however, an extremely defensive approach that will draw undue attention if being utilized under peaceful circumstances. Remember, you want to be vigilant, but you don't want people to think you are a vigilante. And go over the different scenarios with your team or with your family, with the people that you're going to be with. And never press anything. If you see or sense danger approaching, it's always best to just leave. Do not second-guess the situation. We are so busy second-guessing ourselves that we put ourselves in danger. Regardless of how confident or capable you may feel to take on a given situation, walking away is the best solution. Just keep on reminding yourself that this is not a movie, but it's real life. There are no rewards for being a hero. There's only survival. If you see trouble coming, whether it's a natural disaster or herd of human cattle, move away from it. 
If you live on high ground from coastal beaches, you should consider staying in places in case of flood or hurricane. On the other hand, the higher up you find yourself, the greater the danger of high wind gusts. Weigh the potential risks carefully. If you are if you are on level plains, a tornado should elicit the response to evacuate. If you have to build a good fallout shelter, you may want to stay. Once again, variable and prior preparation directly come into play. If you have planned and prepared adequately, staying in place may be the smartest move. But the most dire disaster scenarios can bring in the fear factor. Simply put, if you have all of your ducks in a row, you can survive drastic scenarios. If staying put is your natural inclination, you should already be prepared to stay put, to shelter in place. If you haven't started already, it's not too late to start now. A functional fallout shelter combined with many months worth of food and water reserves along with the generation sources is the baseline for trenching in. If you have to assume that a flood, hurricane, earthquake, tornado, riot, or nuclear fallout will leave you stuck in places for days, if not weeks at a time, you need to assume that it will happen. If you dig in, when most locals evacuate, do not expect the authorities to come looking for you. Do not ever expect help if you plan on staying put. If you're staying put, your go bag becomes becomes everything around you. And if you're staying out, take your go bag with you. The forest is your grocery store. If you're staying out, go into supply stocking with the attitude that too much is not enough. You also have to keep in mind the human tendency to stick with your original plan. If you decide to dig in, you'll be more hesitant to leave later on if the crisis is not diverted. Staying in place can be difficult once the fight or flight instinct kicks in. You may be tempted to switch gears, even if you're not prepared for it. So be prepared for both. This is why stockpiling everything from food and water to tools and weapons is the foundation of any stay-at-home strategy. If you're properly insulated in a protective shelter, you have power and supplies, the temptation to change course and leave will lessen over time. Evacuation requires a more tactical and strategic approach, while staying in one place requires ample supplies and the ability to defend your position. It is the same difference as playing offense or defense in sports. If you stay, you are defending, and you need to be able to absorb all attacks, whether natural or man-made. If you go, you are on the attack and must consider how to break through obstacles and to reach your destination. There are no easy answers or options for you and your team or your family. The rate of survival during disasters increases and decreases based upon your preparedness levels. 
I've had students tell me that they aren't planning to be prepared, that they'll wait for a disaster and get their supplies from the deceased or take it from those who, who they know have already prepared. Really? That's a surefire way to plan your demise. Yet that is the delusional thinking of many people. We can think of disaster survival and situational awareness as a test of strength and endurance. Think of the folks at the gym who spend years tightening and toning their body versus those who perform hard physical labor at work and on their own. Raking leaves, mowing lawns, and chopping trees will rarely lead to anyone looking like a fitness model. These activities, however, will give people real-world strength. That is not to say that bench presses and bicep curls are useless. Not at all. The point is, is that sometimes unnoticed activities can give us strength, which is ignored by mainstream training. Disaster preparation is not any different. Do what you need to do now. And then tell others to do it too. Treat your disaster and evacuation preparedness as a workout. Work both your mental and your physical muscles. Realize that there is a direct connection between the two and that getting yourself prepared properly means addressing all potential situations which may arise. Practice situational awareness and talk to your loved ones about evacuation. Make it both educational and fun. The sorts of disasters that can occur go beyond the boundaries of most nightmares. Instead of living in fear or simply ignoring what can happen, take charge and become proactive in ensuring that you and your family's teams and safety and you can prosper, survive, thrive, stay alive. Take stock in what you have in your possessions and what what you will need to acquire Know that your ultimate goal is survival and that anything else will simply not suffice. Take personal responsibility and realize that you are the only one you can depend on. There's no excuses from this point forward. It's all up to you. Now, situational awareness is a skill that you must work on and develop. As you leave your home and visit stores, restaurants, etc., see if you can begin to train your mind to look for an exit. Observe what is happening around you. What is standing out? And make a decision to point your attention away from your cell phone and focus on the now. Focus on the people that are around you. See how much you can memorize for your surroundings. Continue to sharpen your mind. Now let's talk about some misconception of covert operations. This is an article used with permission by Amit Doben. This lesson will cover some of the more misconceptions that I've encountered among non-practitioners of covert operations, mainly those who want to employ covert operations as covert operators. I could probably write a long and boring and mostly useless book about security and protective intelligence definitions and the various dissenting opinions about those definitions. But for this lesson, I'm just going to touch on 
the very common misunderstandings regarding the terms overt, low profile, and covert as they pertain to the private protection industry. The overt refers to operators who anyone can see that are on duty as security personnel. The most common version of this is uniformed campus security officers, though operators in dark suits and ties also fall into this category. Everyone knows who they are and what they're doing. Then there's low profile operators are usually plain clothed individuals or ones dressed like the people around them who try not to draw any attention or make it too obvious that they're providing protection. And most untrained people will probably not notice who they are and what they're doing, but trained or experienced or observant individuals might. Strictly speaking, low profile is not an attempt to hide security. It's just to make it less conspicuous and attention grabbing. Then there's a covert. It means that nobody is supposed to know that there's an operator there. It's not a question of hiding or camouflaging, but of blending in and making it appear like the operator is not engaged in a protection or intelligence operation. In the government sector, there are those who make the distinction between terms covert and clandestine, a clandestine operation. According to the United States Department of Defense, it differs from a covert operation in that emphasis is placed on concealment of the operation rather than on concealment of the identity of the sponsor. In the private sector, this is mostly viewed as a distinction without much of a difference. One important distinction we do have in the private sector, however, is between cases where a covert operation is added to an overt one and cases where only the covert contingency is there. And I've participated in both. There are operations where an individual facility or event has an overt security force and a covert force that's there to augment it. This means it's not a secret that there's someone or something there to protect and that the operators are there to protect it, but the true extent of the protective effort is. On the other hand, there are situations where no overt security team is and only a covert measures are in play. In these cases, the idea is not to draw attention to the fact that there's anyone or anything there to protect in the first place and to make it seem like no protective measures are being employed at all. And some of the most common confusions and conflictions that I've encountered are between the terms low profile and covert, namely people who describe a low profile situation as a covert one. But I've also had clients, unsurprisingly from Hollywood, who said she wanted Secret Service looking close protections, you know, like black suits, pigtails, earpieces, to provide covert protection. I had to inform her that we'd be happy to provide her with covert protection, but that the Secret Service look was nothing if not overt. You can have one or the other, but they are not the same. Whenever I get a request for a covert operation, I start by asking the client about their concerns and goals. And quite often, once the picture becomes clear, it turns out that an overt or low-profile situation can serve their needs much better than a covert one. 
One of the most important factors in preventative security is deterrence by appearance, which is the appearance as a security personnel, which can discourage a would-be attacker. But if the operators work covertly, there's no visual deterrence and therefore much less effective prevention. This means that covert prote protection on its own is much more reactive than overt protection. To only jump into action after an attacker has taken some initiative is something that isn't really desirable. Covert protection and covert surveillance detection can be extremely effective in prevention when it augments an overt protective force, but on its own, it's much more reactive. And I hope I'm not confusing you guys. Remember, covertness is a tool, not a goal. Many people fall in love with the idea of a covert operation without first considering if it's the best tool for the job. The tool needs to serve the goal, not the other way around. As extensively as I've talked about in the past, the harsh, often boring and grinding realities of real-life covert operations, there's no denying that there's also a certain coolness factor to them. There, I got that out of the way. But it's also important to not let the coolness factor blind you to the necessities of achieving your goals. Most security goals are achieved through uncool conventional measures, and most intelligence is collected from unexciting open sources. It's important not to mistake the coolness, ingenuity, or sexiness of the method for the quality and usefulness of what it gives you. And I know what you're thinking. You work in covert operations and you're just talking about an entire lesson discouraging people from employing covert operation. Thanks a lot. Okay. Well, let's end on a positive note. I'm not trying to discourage people from employing covert operations. I just want to educate people about when to employ them and when not to. The intention of this portion of the broadcast is to give you some tips and suggestions for covert operators and to point out some of the more common and therefore predictable and therefore detectable indicators of the mistakes that many operators tend to make. These indicators and mistakes apply to most types of covert operations, from hostile surveillance to surveillance detection, covert security, protective surveillance. Now I'm going to talk, hmm. I'm going to therefore cover many of the problems and mistakes that you'll want to look for in others while trying to avoid these mistakes yourself. And I'm not saying go out there and try to be a covert operator. I'm just saying open your eyes to what you can see in situational awareness to see if there is someone who's watching you or watching someone else. These insights come from my own operational instructional experience, and I want to make it clear that I am in no way an absolute authority on, on the subject, mostly because there's no such thing. And if you happen to disagree or question any part of what I'm saying, I would be very grateful for any comments or questions that you might want to ask. So let's go over the basics first. A cover is the visual projection of what a covert operation wants people to see, and therefore of what he wants people to think of him or her. For example, if you want people to think you're a homeless person, then you dress and look like a homeless person from a distance. 
Anyone looking your way should conclude just by the sight that you're a homeless person. A cover story, as its name suggests, is the verbal representation of your cover. In other words, what and how you might have to verbally explain who you are and or what you're doing. For obvious reasons, the cover story has to fit and even strengthen the cover. Otherwise, it would seem suspicious or curious if the person who looks homeless, for example, talks like a law enforcement officer. One of the keys to the cover story is to always start with a good cover and then work your way towards a good cover story. This order is important because the main idea is to visually embed yourself into the environment in such a bland and boring way that no one ever pays any attention to you, much less tries to question or talk to you. And a common mistake I've seen many people make when trying to establish a cover is to invest too much energy in appearing as harmless as they can while forgetting that a cover that's interesting, fun, and attractive is almost always a bad one. And since it fails the boring test. I've also seen many people spin elaborate stories about what their cover story is and then fail to fit a boring enough cover to go with it. Start with a cover, make it boring, and then add a cover story to it. As for the cover story itself, keep it simple. Try to keep it within the boundaries of things that you actually know from experience so you can talk about it naturally and even elaborate if people ask you questions. So while staying far away from any information that can actually lead you to who you really are, do not volunteer too many details and keep it bland and boring so that the person you're talking to will forget as soon as he walks away. There's a celebrated quote by Winston Churchill who, after being asked what he attributed his success in life, he answered, quote, economy of effort, never stand up when you can sit down and never sit down when you can lie down, unquote. This little tongue-in-cheek answer does actually make a good point when applied to covert operations. In most cases, movement attracts more attention than non-movement. Standing attracts more attention than sitting. Bland and lazy are your best friends. In my experience, most people who gravitate towards covert operations tend to have backgrounds in the military, law enforcement, security, or all of the above. The reasons why I mention this is because serious people with these types of backgrounds naturally move and posture themselves in ways that are opposite of bland and lazy. For the exact same reasons that standing and moving around are good military, law enforcement, and security habits, allowing the officer to project more of a deterring presence while extending visual control, these are bad habits for covert operations. The tendency to maintain a command presence and to want to visually control your environment will usually make you stick out and will sudden movements, abrupt stoops, then stops, and quick head turns. At the very least, these actions will make you look interesting, suggesting that there's something going on with you. As a covert operator, you should want the exact opposite. You're bland lazy and boring. You should also keep in mind that it will be difficult to look bland and lazy and boring if you don't look comfortable. And since it's hard to look comfortable, if you're not, make sure you actually get physically comfortable. 
A person that's physically uncomfortable probably looks uncomfortable. And looking uncomfortable can attract interest, curiosity, and suspicion. As for looking boring, another useful, useful expression is, if you're bored, you're boring. Sit down, calm down, get comfortable, and try to get bored. Which leads me to the next point. Sit down. The two main advantages to sitting down will give you a less noticeable appearance combined with the ability to see and notice more yourself. That sitting will make you less noticeable was already mentioned in the category above, but I can't tell you how many times I've heard myself repeat this simple instruction during trainings. And though it might seem strange that such a basic idea would be so difficult to follow, this is precisely why field exercises are so crucial to show you that simple ideas in theory feel very different and are much more difficult to practice. There are relatively few reasons for being in a fixed position without sitting down, and most of those reasons not only fail the boring cover test, but keep you from being as observant as you can otherwise be. Find somewhere to sit down, get comfortable, and relax. No changing the fixed positions. Okay, so you sat down. Great. Now, stay there. It's often the case that only after you've already assumed a vantage point, hopefully sitting down, you notice an even better vantage point that you could have picked. And there's nothing ironic about this. You'll always be able to see and understand more after you stop moving and sit down, which is one of the main reasons you sit down in the first place. But as attempting as it is to move to that other position, don't do it. There might be many legitimate reasons for normal people to move from one nearby spot to another, but even in the best case scenario, doing this will make you stick out more than if you just stay in your original spot. Now you made your bed, now lie in it. Next time, try to find the better vantage point, but now stay put. You get to a new location, then you quickly look for vantage point. As it's often the case in urban areas, there's like a bus stop. Just so happens to be the perfectly positioned point. It even has a number of people standing and sitting there. All the better for you to blend in. Good, good vantage point, right? Wrong. There are exceptions as usual. Bus stops do indeed provide a logical justification for standing or hopefully sitting in every central location. But this justification only makes sense if the bus stop is used for its intended purpose, to get on the bus. Using this advantage point for an extended period of time will not make sense because everyone else in the bus stop will eventually get on the bus, leaving the covert operator looking at a place. And you might be able to justify a good 20 to 30 minutes at a bus stop, but eventually you'll have to board one of the buses sooner or later. The same principle applies when conducting mobile surveillance on foot. It's important to keep in mind that mobile surveillance will always contain stops, many of which will be short ones, traffic lights, etc. Blending into small groups of people standing at a bus stop for some 30 to 40 seconds until the target starts moving again might seem very inviting. But once again, remember, there's only one logical justification for standing at a bus stop, getting on the bus. If you absolutely have to use a bus stop for a relatively short amount of time until you actually get on a bus, pay attention to where the bus is coming from. The other people at the bus stop will almost always look that way 
And you don't want to enact the old surveillance cliche of the single person looking the wrong way. And your cell phone can be your best friend or your worst enemy, depending on how you use it. If you're surveilling somebody, not only is your cell phone the best and most natural and therefore least suspicious way to communicate in general, it can provide necessary occupations that can justify your presence at most locations. Look around you the next time you're out and about and notice what bored and boring people are doing. Remember, you're wanting to look bored. Nine times out of ten, they'll have their smartphones in their hands. Your phone can even help you when conducting mobile surveillance on foot. Unexpected stops are almost unavoidable in these situations, and using your phone as a momentary justification for stopping to seemingly answer some text message or answering the phone can be helpful at times. And it might feel counterintuitive for people with strong security and military law enforcement backgrounds to keep playing with their phones during important operations, but that's precisely one of the advantages of the cell phone, and it makes you appear distracted and unprofessional, which is all the more useful for covering up your background when you're under surveillance. From my experience, when most people consider what a covert operator might look like, they tend to think of a single individual, usually a male. And when instructing a surveillance course, it usually takes trainees a few days to come up with the idea that it might be beneficial to work in pairs or even groups in some cases. And indeed it is. The covert operational, the arch-typical covert operator, is the lone male, like 007. And this should give you all the more reason to try to work together with someone if possible and appropriate, and in some cases, even females. Few things are more innocuous looking than a man and a woman sitting together in a coffee shop or walking down the street. What are the man and the woman doing over there? They're sitting and talking, right? A couple can often take this innocuous appearance with them from one location to another, pretty much bringing their own self-generated covers with them. But another obvious advantage that working together can provide is teamwork. Two people can sit facing each other, for example, pretending to have a casual conversation as one is focusing on the target and describing what they see, and the other, facing away from the target, is jotting down the information. You can do this in coffee shops, outdoor coffee shops, outdoor cafes. There's no point in ignoring the arch-typical covert operation as male, someone usually in his 20s to his 50s, usually with a background of military, law enforcement, security, all of the above, like we've talked before. And if you think this discriminates against those that don't fall into this narrow demographic, let me assure you that the opposite is the case. Simply being female gives an operative a natural advantage, as does a younger or more advanced age. The reasons for this, as politically incorrect as they might sound, should be pretty obvious. And I can tell from a few years of experience that some of the hardest individuals to detect on both sides of the surveillance are the quintessential little old ladies. Conversely, though I would never endorse doing such a thing, The fact cannot be ignored that the use of children, usually for hostile surveillance, is not uncommon and should be acknowledged. Watch 
for personality traits, one of the most important yet difficult factors for covert operations to deal with is their personality and how it affects their way that they look at others. As been mentioned before, people who gravitate towards covert operations very often have backgrounds, we already know, in the military or law enforcement. When considering how to dress for covert operation, you might be tempted to go for the type of clothes that you're used to wearing in casual situations. The problem is that casual is a subjective idea that stems from and represents your personality and the personality of someone with a strong background who's serious enough to get into covert operations is not a thing you'd want to represent in your external appearance. The main point to understand here is that a thing that's casual for you probably reveals something about your personality trait, which has the potential to reveal something about your background and about who you might be surveilling or what you might be doing. The most common manifestation I keep seeing is a classic off-duty or low-profile officer agent look, a casual and comfortable look that's very common to industry professionals, even on their own time. And some of you already know what I'm talking about, you know, comfortable blue jeans, khakis or cargos, loose-fitting, untucked golfer, buttoned-up shirts, the kind that's good for concealing a weapon, comfortable walking and sporting shoes. Let me remind people, watch the shoes. If you see somebody or you think someone is following you and then you turn around and 15 minutes later you think you see the same person but their clothes are different, look at their shoes. When you see them the first time, look at their shoes. When you see them the second time but their clothes are changed, most of the time they do not change their shoes. This is very common. It's very predictable. Am I saying that anyone who possesses any of these personality traits is necessarily a covert operator? Not at all. I can safely say that the vast majority are nothing of the sort, but these situations or items can increase the risk of your being added to the list of potential positives. And if a potential positive also happens to have somewhat of a serious disposition and occupies a potential vantage point, he can be easily tagged as a strong positive. And I'll be honest, the typical low-profile officer that likes to look like an officer is one that I myself like. But the fact that someone with my background and personality likes this look is all the more reason to avoid it when trying to hide what type of person you are when you are surveilling. Odds are, if you think it looks good on you, it's probably because it fits and represents your personality, which means you should probably go change. Try to wear something that doesn't represent who you are. Most people have some articles of clothing in their house that they don't like about, you know, the skinny jeans that your your girlfriend or your wife or someone got you a while back. How about that wimpy cardigan sweater that some well-meaning aunt got you for Christmas a few years ago? The fact that these don't suit your taste and definitely don't suit your idea of what might be good for a tactical operation is exactly the reason why it will work. It will do a good job of masking who you really are and what you're really doing. This same principle also applies to your behavior. 
as had been discussed earlier in, uh, in what I was talking about. Conduct yourself in a way that looks dull or even somewhat dim-witted as you slump down in your seat and play with your cell phone. You might feel like the opposite of what you're used to doing when it comes to important tactical operations. But once again, that's precisely what makes it so good for masking who you are and what you're doing. Over the years, I've had the privilege of training and working with a number of individuals who did not possess the typical covert operator personality traits. This gave them a natural advantage since they didn't have to overcome any personality, appearance, or behavioral traits in order to glide under people's radars and blend into the environment. These included short, skinny, bicycle-riding hipsters, young Asian females, little old ladies, and the types. They've been some of the most formidable operators that I've ever seen, almost effortlessly invisible, even to those who were actually trying to detect them. But for the rest of us who do have to contend with our backgrounds and personality traits, honest self-reflection is the first step towards better understanding what you look like to other people. Training can certainly help, but you also need a sincere willingness to step out of your comfort zones. Make a few mistakes and never stop learning. Take a group of friends, a group of people, your teammates, and go to them all. Choose one person to surveil through them all, and then surveil that person. Make your mistakes while you can, because making a mistake in a real surveillance situation can cost you your life. And as always, no book, no article, no seminar, no broadcast can be said to actually teach people how to perform covert operations. Though some of the wording that I've used tonight might seem instructional, please keep in mind that this broadcast is not intended to teach anyone how to execute covert operations. So this ends the broadcast for me tonight, and it's my hope that you actually learned something valuable. Thank you for joining me around my campfire on this cold, very windy, and rainy night. And you know my motto, train hard, train smart. Thank you.